Thank you. It's great to be with you this morning for this last service. Um, it's always uh, it's good to be invited in to be the old guy. <laughs> Yesterday morning, I was with my wife. It's her first time here at the church, and uh, I was showing her around. We were over where Terry has taken me for coffee when we have talked to four barrels over here. I was getting a slow roast, and uh, while they were getting it ready, I turned uh, to the full house and the line and the crowd, and as I have thought so many times uh, over my lifetime, I wish I could uh, lock the door, buy everybody a coffee, and um, ask them what they're talking about. It happens when change comes across your life. And I'll pray, could I have a conversation with so many of these uh, millennials? Look out at so many of your faces and, and uh, see the potential in your generation and this generation behind you to come. But I can tell you it is born out of conflict. My dad was a, uh, as Tom Brokaw calls them, the greatest generation, this World War II forging generation. And um, when I come into San Francisco, I am reminded of its um, eclectic nature and the uniqueness of the challenges that you face, how different uh, people, groups, and generations are. And I believe that for, for men like me, uh, we just like to have a talk because I have been handed a great legacy and feel a responsibility in that. And so thank you for allowing me into San Francisco, into your, into your uh, uh, district here in the Castro and in the Mission District, and, and for the privilege of God answering my prayer that when I look at you this morning, I feel like I'm in the coffee shop. And quite honestly, it weighs heavily on me because I, I think to myself, let's say this is the only time you and I ever meet. It's quite possible. And we have a conversation. I'd like to talk to you about um, what I've been going through. God has called me a long time ago to talk about Him and the intersection He made in my life and how that relationship with people in places to the furthest most places in the earth have impacted my wife and I, our children, and now our eight grandchildren, soon to be nine. I know you look at me and say, that's impossible. <laughs> but by far the greatest, greatest, greatest part of my life are our three children. And uh, my son just sent me a text. He's lead pastor in Atlanta of an incredible church, young church. And um, I'm so very proud of him and what God's doing with them. My, my daughter is uh, heading up what we do around the world, leading a hope center to some of the poorest women and children in all of Central America. She and her husband have an incredible church, if you're ever in Costa Rica, called the Open House Project. And then I ask you with my whole heart to pray for our youngest son, Matthew, and his wife and children lead the relief efforts of Samaritan's Purse, a great organization in northern Iraq to the more than three million uh, displaced refugees there. 
and a very dangerous and very hostile place. And so um, if you'd allow me, I'd like to pray, get my heart ready, because I'm nervous. I've been doing this a long time, but on my human side, I'm as nervous as if it was my first time, especially with so many of you so young, that I would say what God exactly would have me say in the next 25 minutes or so. And hopefully I'll get to meet you again. But if I don't, I'm going to try and leave some things that God's taught me here recently with you that might help you through what you face. Let's pray. Father, I come to you now in the name of Jesus, and um, uh, I don't want to uh, tell stories or share principles that don't come from you and what you've taught me and asked me to learn and see and smell and feel. I ask that you'd forgive me of any sins that I have not confessed uh, that nothing would stand between you and I. This morning, uh, everyone that's here has come to hear from you. And so let me step aside and perhaps in the quietness of these next few moments, we could hear the soft sound of sandaled feet and realize that you have come to sit with us and talk with us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, uh, I was on the road with my wife. We'd just come home from an inter international trip working with uh, suffering uh, children. And my brother called me. I have one brother, he's two years younger, chief of the fire department and paramedics in Ocala, Florida, the middle part of the state of Florida. And my brother said, uh, hey, listen, I wanted to give you a heads up. Dad fell last night. If you can imagine this World War II Korean War veteran at two o'clock in the morning out behind his home raking leaves because he couldn't sleep, he said. And he fell and tripped and fractured his back and hit his head. 85 years old and uh, I tell people about my dad that he was a man that was made for two things, hard work and war. He's a West Virginia coal miner, steel mill worker, and uh, ended his career in heavy construction building bridges. A faithful man who loved my mother. My mom was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease when she was 41 years old. Last 13 years of her life, we had the privilege of them living with us. Mom was bedridden. And I watched a man that for more than 50 years loved my mom. And, uh, and loved her as the vows say, for better or for worse, in sickness or in health for as long as we both will live. And so my brother called later that day or the next morning, I don't remember, but I do remember the call. He said, you need to get down here. Um, Dad's not in good shape. So my wife and I immediately, we got in the car and, and uh, as we are in this series talking about heroes of the faith, in a moment I'm going to dive into the Older Testament and I'm going to pull someone out because of the story that I'm telling you about right now. So we get to Florida and uh, to the hospital and, and I'm expecting the worst. So we walk in and I walk into the hospital room and there's my dad. He's kind of sitting there with that stern look on his face. He goes, what are you here for? <laughs> I said, well, I heard we had some leaves to rake in the backyard. What? What are you doing? He said, you shouldn't have come. And I turned and walked out with my brother. I said, 
he looks fine. He said, wait till tonight. I said, okay, what is it? Just wait. So my brother had been two nights in a row with dad at night, so that night I spelled him and, and uh, sat in the hospital and what I saw broke my heart. The blow to his head, the doctors told us, had uh, launched um, dementia quickly. And Dad was living a, a nightmare through the night. Uh, he was talking about stuff that happened to him when he was a kid. And I'd wake him out, and it was hard waking him out of this uh, awake dream and him trying to block somebody hitting him and stuff, you know. And, and uh, I'd never seen this before. And finally, when the night was over, I was exhausted. And Dad would wake up. I said, how are you, Dad? I'm fine. You remember last night? No. I'd get him coffee and put him in a wheelchair, and we'd go outside. So the doctors came in after a few days, and I, I you know, a son knows in his dad's eyes changes. I'm the oldest. And I guess growing up, you know, I would watch my dad, and I would be guided whether he was uh, upset about something with which with me between our generations. Nobody taught my dad or mentored my dad, I don't think in that generation, how to express themselves, not, not feelings or... Dad didn't want to talk about the war. He didn't want to talk about mistakes or failures or broken dreams or... Dad just got up at 4.30, he ate his breakfast, went to work in the dark, came home in the dark, and uh, expected out of us responsibility, wanted us to act like men when we were 10. And uh, I grew up with a dad that you weren't allowed to cry, at least not in his presence, because nowadays don't cry. When a lady walked in a room, you stood up. When she sat down, you pulled out her chair. When you went through the door of a store, you held the door for any lady that came behind. My dad was kind of that old John Wayne type. You know, you treat people with dignity and respect or it costs you. So here's my old dad. I'm looking at his eyes and I'm seeing something I've not ever, I've, been, I've never seen it before. I'm watching it for about three days and doing these night watches because I'm the oldest sending my brother home, getting him through these awful nights until the doctor finally came in and said, we're seeing a change in his face, it's a stroke or a brain bleed. And while he's telling my father this, and my brother and I are standing there, I turn to my dad and he looks at me and the doctor leaves and we thank him and my dad turns to me, his oldest son, and says, don't let him open up my head, son. I wanna go see your mom. My mom died in 2004 and and from the day mom died, my father said nothing that, if you had a conversation or were in his presence, especially sitting in the home covered with her pictures, he would say, I don't know why God leaves me here. I want to see your mom. It was because of my mom that my dad crossed the line of faith. It was my mom's prayers during the Korean War that she prayed for him every day that I believe was in it with my whole heart that on a Sunday in 1954, about five or six rows back in the church we were raised in, that when it came to the end of the service, my father got my mom by the hand 
and went down front, as was the tradition, and gave his heart to Christ. Changed our lives forever. And so dad, for 50 years, got up in the dark. He worked hard, and he expressed the love that he never told us he had. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family where my dad never told me we loved, he loved us. I'm not one of those guys that say that warped me. I'm a guy that said my dad modeled love. He didn't need to tell me. And the way he loved God and my mother and never missed a game that my brother and I ever played. He wasn't like other dads that came in in nice cars and dressed well. He came in in a pickup truck and he was dirty from a day of hard work. But he stood there on the field and he was there for us, thick or thin, win or loss. I saw something in my dad's eyes that day. I said, Dad, what is it? Don't let him open my head, son. I want to see your mom. For three days, Dad was conscious. We made Dad comfortable. We fulfilled his wishes. And on the Sunday night before the Wednesday that he went to see God and my mom, there was a man in the room with us. We were in one of those uh, two-people rooms, and, and both TVs were going, and there was something on TV we didn't want to watch, but it was a... Uh, you know, it was something to do. And so my arm was on the bed. Dad was laying here. And, and uh, the next thing I know, my dad's rubbing my arm. And I'm thinking, this is weird. <laughs> my dad never rubbed my arm. I never remember him rubbing my anything. And he's rubbing my arm. And I'm, I'm almost 60 years old thinking to myself, I wonder if I should look at him. Isn't it funny with your, when you're with your dad, no matter how old you are, so many of you young, you'll find that you still feel like you're 15, 12. And so I turned to look at my dad, and only the second time I've ever seen him cry, the day my mom died, I saw my father cry for the first time. And he's rubbing my arm, and tears are running down his face out of those blue eyes. I said, Dad, what is it? He said, look at me. That's what he'd always say right before he'd whip us. <laughs> you look at me. He'd tell us what we did wrong, how we violated the Nauri path of life. He said, look at me, son. And I looked at my father. He said, I'm on, your, on my way to see your mom. I'm sorry I was so hard on you. And in a quick knee-jerk reaction, I don't know if you've ever done this, I said, oh, Dad, you weren't hard on me. And then I wanted to take it back. <laughs> he was hard on me. He said, son, I was hard on you. He said, I just wanted you to amount to something. It was the last talk my dad and I would ever have. The next night, my brother and I were in the room, and my father always had a fear of facing God. I don't know, it's not been an issue for me, but for my father it was a huge issue. He used to say to me on occasion, because I was the resident family theologian, 
Every once in a while, my dad would say, maybe between four or five year spans, you think God's going to be okay with me, son? You can see this look in his eyes. I see people all over this world with that look in their eyes of, if it is really true that we will have a face-to-face meeting with God, is he going to be okay with us? And my father had prayed that prayer and he had crossed the line of faith as a young married man with my mom. But dad carried a heavy burden inside of him and never expressed what it was, what it came out of. And I was 55 years old one day when something very innocently happened that I called my dad and I said, hey pops, I told him what had happened, and the next morning I woke up in North Carolina. He lived in Florida, and he was sitting on my driveway and sat in front of me like he was 14 years old and said, I want to tell you a story about something that happened in my life. And when he came to the end of telling the story, I was so sad that he had carried that by himself his entire life. So I put my arms around my dad that night, and I said, Dad... Let's get you ready to see God. Would you pray with me, Dad? And his speech had started to slur for whatever was happening in his head, but he was still clear. And he said to me, as, as, as those old military dads would say, yes, sir. I said, pray this prayer with me. God, I'm on my way to see you. Be merciful to me. A long time ago, I trusted you as my Lord and Savior, and I'm still trusting in that. Forgive me of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. I listened to his slurred speech, pray that prayer, and by the next morning, Dad was in a coma. And a day later, my son on one side, my Brother, on the other, my wife and I walked out to get a cup of coffee. We were sitting with my hero, my father, the man that taught me hard work and honesty and character and loyalty and showing up at your kids' stuff and being the grandfather every kid dreams of. He struggled for his breath. My brother walked out and said, Dad's with Mom. So you have someone here to talk to you this morning that's grieving. I'm grieving the loss of my hero. But I will tell those of you that have not faced that yet, some of you that are, that grieving for me is a matter of remembering what he left us. He didn't leave us the Hearst Castle. I was there the other day with my wife for the first time and and I thought to myself, when this man came to the end of his life, his kids didn't want the castle. They didn't want to manage the castle. They couldn't sell the castle. Nobody wanted to buy the castle. So they finally gave it to the state of California. You're paying for the castle. (laughs) 
But I couldn't help think to myself, when Dad came to the end of his life, he had $2,200 in change in the bank, and he did not owe anyone one thing. My brother asked me, is there anything you want? I said, two things, Mark. A picture that's hung in the house, my dad's favorite picture of my mom. I want that picture. I walked out into Dad's tool shed, small garage of tools that were my grandfather's and great-grandfather's and my dad's. And there's an old concrete finish trowel, those of you that know concrete work, that was worn slap out, is what we'd say in the South. I said, I want that trowel. It's always going to remind me. It'll always remind me of how hard he worked. That's all. Heroes. Somebody you want to be like. That at the end of the day, those of you that are young and you're, you're shaping your careers, my gosh, you're the, the smartest our world has to offer. Walking around Mission Street yesterday and I'm seeing, there's, a, there's some, uh, just observations now. Seems like the, the youngest of you that come to San Francisco, you're wearing your, your college t-shirts, MIT, Stanford, Yale, and Harvard, Cali Paul, Paul, uh, Cal Polytech, and all this stuff, you know. But after you hear a little bit, some strange t-shirts. But I'm looking at you saying that uh, you're the technology, you're the best of the best, the smartest in the world. You know, I walk by you and I go, hello. And you, you get up against the wall like I'm trying to steal your purse. <laughs> this morning I pulled up outside to drop some books off and, and a lady was walking along and, and I thought she came to Cornerstone or something, you know, and I said, good morning, how are you? And she literally got up against the wall like this to get past me. <laughs> and I thought... Why are you so unhappy and untrusting and suspicious? What has happened? These big holes that are right down through the center of us so that we are, we are in what I believe is the greatest nation on the earth with the greatest opportunity there ever has been to affect the world. And we are the most isolated, individualistic non-connected people that I have, I've seen in my four decades. And yet I go into the coffee shop over there and everybody's talking and chit-chatting and I assume they're all friends and I see them get up by themselves and leave and the, I don't think they even know each other. And I say, what are those conversations about? Well, if you never see me again, I want to talk to you about a legacy that both Josiah from the old books a king that was king when he was eight. My father left me. If you go back here into the, into the kitchen where I was last night and today, I, I love good coffee. I always appreciate that here. And I put just a little bit of half and half in my coffee and it has a sell-by date, right? The half and half that was on the front row said September the 7th of this year is the sell-by date. So we're good. <laughs> but you know, you pick something up and you look at it and you go, 
September the 7th, 2011. And you go, you know, I just don't believe I'll try that. But there is a, a lie that has been presented to you millennials and to the younger generation, the Z generation, that the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the older books, has passed its sell-by date. In a moment I'm going to tell you what I think uh, about that and what Jesus said about that, but I want to say to you, my father has taught me a long time ago that what he taught us will never pass the sell-by date. My father, a simple blue-collar worker, did not leave wealth as the world defines it, but left two things that I can hear him say that he would have me say to you today. He would say that the Bible allows God to speak. And son, when God speaks, you let that be your guide path to life. Son, when you go to college, I can remember when I was dating, sometimes, it didn't happen all the time, but I'd be getting cleaned up, getting my muscle car ready, and we had been either working or playing football and going to school and stuff. And as I'd go out the door, all of a sudden he'd be behind me and and with that big, strong, steel-like hand, he'd get me by the arm, and I'd turn around, and he'd say, now you treat her like a lady tonight. Doesn't pass the sell-by date. When I went to college, my mother handed me a Bible to go with me. My father stood there as my mom handed it to me, and he said, son, you remember who you are. You're a Nauri. You act like it. Now that dad is gone, that legacy of God speaking through a timeless book, the Bible, and it becoming a guide path to your life is a legacy that I want to pass on to our grandchildren. Because you see, those of you that do have some gray in your hair, or no hair, (laughs) you think the same thing I do. We don't want to embarrass our grandchildren. God help us. God speaks. He gave us his word. And it's a guidebook to life. Now quickly look at your handout. And, uh, and, and if you have a pen, make a change. See 1 Kings 22? It's 2 Kings 22. That's my fault. I gave it to the guys and that's not what it is. 2 Kings 22. This is a tough passage because for for me not being too bright, there are some names in here that aren't exactly easy. So bear with me as we read through the passage. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah from Boscath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, followed the example of his ancestor David. That was King David. He did not turn away from what was doing what was right. That's a significant statement. In the 18th year of his reign, 26 years old, King Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and grandson of Meshulam, the court secretary to the temple of the Lord. He told him, go to Hekiah, the high priest, 
and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Have them buy the timber and the finished stone needed to repair the temple, but don't require the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they receive, for they are honest and trustworthy men. Hekiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Note that. Then Hekiah gave the scroll, scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Shaphan went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hekiah the priest has given me the scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. He gave these orders to Hekiah the priest, Hekiah son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the court secretary, and Aziah the king's personal advisor. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people in all of Judah. Inquire about the words written in the scroll that has been found, for the Lord's great anger is burning against us. This is the second point to note, because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. Sell-by date. Until you come to a place that you believe as a person that this life is not all there is, as long as you believe that, then as the Apostle Paul said, let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Life's a vapor. Appears for a little while and it's gone. But at the moment you feel something inside a hole, uh, something that nothing that the world offers can, can bring satisfaction to, and you, and you consider the path that God's speaking in His Word says, then you have to answer this question. Do all roads lead to heaven? In my travels around the world with all the religions of the world, often I would give anything, I would give anything to say that is true. All roads don't lead to heaven. If God speaks, and He speaks through His Word, and it's the guide path of life, it's the decision. The Bible says all roads lead to God but all roads don't lead to heaven. The Bible says it's appointed to each of us once to die, and after that the judgment. What'd you do with Jesus? That's what my dad left behind. This is where God speaks, son, and this is your guidebook to life. What will you do with that? Because you see, this morning in this last service I have Fully devoted followers of Christ that have made that decision, you're all in. And then I have people that are alongside of Jesus. You're in the group, sometimes at a distance, sometimes closer. But you have not fully crossed that line. And then I have people investigating. You've been invited here, you 
ended up here this morning and said, I thought we were going to brunch. <laughs> and so the question comes, what are you going to do with this? Change is on its way. And you will write your own legacy because your success is based on the decisions you will make that will form that legacy. I learned a long time ago that, that there's probably four things that are, that are ahead of you you'll face. One that I just shared, are you going to cross that line of faith? Are you going to see Jesus not simply as a good man or a prophet or a good teacher in the religious leaders of the world, but as God's only begotten Son that died on the cross, not for the world, but for you? If you cross that line, one of the greatest things that I see um, that breaks my heart is how few people really have, have found freedom from their past. If God is real, Satan is also real. And I'm going to tell you he's very much at work in robbing you of happiness and joy. You carry this deep wound from your past or brokenness or failure or disappointment or something that didn't work out. And Jesus said, bring all your cares to me because I care for you. Lay aside these things that weigh you down and run a race. Considering him, Jesus, who endured such an affliction, the cross and the beatings, so that you might be set free. If you carry these great, deep, broken burdens that keep you awake in your nights, Jesus has come so that you know, might know the truth and that the truth will set you free. The third thing that he wants to do is give you a set of skills and tools. Not your human one, not the MIT ones or the Stanford ones or the I studied hard and earned that diploma ones. I'm talking about spiritual tools, gifts that he wants to give you that like me sitting up here right now as an introvert, See, people make the mistake that I'm this huge people person, and the minute I get done, I want to go hide in the back. <laughs> and each time I have to say, God, help me do what humanly I cannot. I walk through that door, and I'm sitting in a chair because I can't stand up much, not and speak. He wants to give you a set of gifts and skills that when he uses them, the fourth thing is you can go out and make a difference in the world that only you can make. I think each of us are designed individually to make a difference that nobody else can make. Not your careers, not your jobs, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what makes you so upset out there in the world that you'd be willing to go spend the rest of your life trying to change it. See, that's what sets us apart. My wife and I are grieving not only the loss of my father, we're grieving coming from the leper colonies of India. I've worked in more than 100 countries in my lifetime, seen some of the worst disasters, everything from the early infections of HIV in Africa, in the US, the loss of 10 million people. 
It's horrific. All the way to all the major diseases and wars and conflicts that you have read about. But nothing, nothing has compared to walking into a leper colony. 27 countries in the world today have leprosy. India has more than 130,000 lepers that are sequestered to government colonies. They're back in the darkness. As you can imagine, they're embarrassed by their physical conditions. And we were invited to go in because of the need of their children and grandchildren to build a hope center. We're going to call it Mason's Place. One day I hope to tell you the story for more than a thousand children of these lepers and these displaced orphans. So we walked the leper colony. I turned and looked at my wife in the second leper colony. I thought she was going to pass out. It was so hot. And the smell of flesh and sewage and abandonment. I said, let me ask you a question. If on our second date I said to you we would end up working leper colonies, would you still be with me? I appreciated her honesty. She looked at me and said, I'll have to think about it. <laughs> but you know, when we walked in, I asked the young couple that we're working, that we had met and are going to partner with and help, what are the protocols? He said, thanks for asking. I said, are other Americans, outsiders come in? He said, yeah. What's your observation? He said, no one ever wants to touch them. I said, what do they need? He said, I'm going to let you discover. Come with me. And so we walked into that colony, and each colony has the president of the colony. And so this little, small, frail Indian man came hobbling up, no toes, no fingers, no digits. And he reached out with his hand. And in an instant, I thought to myself, no one, no one sees, you know, um, I, don't, I didn't need to tell this story. I'm certainly not that good of a guy, trust me. But he put that hand out and I thought, instantly, what would Jesus do? And I reached out and I took his hands and he grabbed my other hand with those nubs and that leprosy and sweat pouring off of him. And he said, thank you for coming. I was all in. I'm 60 years old. Something's got to kill me. <laughs> and so I went from room to room, and I, my wife and I met the lepers, and I want to tell you to, to just give you an idea. I think they're going to throw some pictures up there of some of the, the lepers that we met. But when you hold their hands like that, when you, and I wish you could see closely, this poor lady the ulceration of leprosy on her hand. She knows nobody wants to hold her hand. When you sit with them in the room, this man with no legs and no hands, and they translated for me, and I asked uh, the young man that was with us, what are they asking for? He said, nothing for themselves, just to help their children and grandchildren. There's their children and grandchildren. They live with their parents till they're 12 years old. They believe after that they become susceptible to le leprosy, so they put them on the streets as orphans. 300 million orphans in India. 
long time ago I said, God, you point me to where I can make a difference. I don't know how I ended up there. I'm not unique or special or incredibly talented. But I learned a long time ago that for clean water and a little bit of food and a $4 a month education, we can give them hope. And so I'm going to spend the next part of my life trying to do that. But when you see leprosy and the heartache of it, I come here to San Francisco and cities like it, and I see people that on the outside they don't show the signs of leprosy, but on the inside they're just as broken. People pass by the lepers who the only way they can make money is to be put in carts and pushed out into the street to beg. And I say, nobody deserves that. And I come here and I look at some very sophisticated, very well-educated, very successful people that we just get so caught up in us that we don't reach out and show compassion by taking our neighbor and colleagues and friends by the hand and saying, let me walk this with you. You can't reach to India until you first reach across the hall and next door and from one cube to another or executive office to another and say, what's going on in your life? I don't know what's going on in your life. I cross the line of faith, I'm following Jesus. I'm an adventurer. You know, people ride with me in an airplane and the other day I was flying to our Hope Center in Costa Rica and they said to me, hey, you been to Costa Rica before? I said, yeah, a lot of times, 30 years. Really? Yeah. Is the fishing as good as they say? Yeah, it's unbelievable. You see these guys up in first class and they'll go, I hear you can buy a girl down there 15, 16 years old for 20 bucks. Is that true? I go, yeah. No way. Yeah. Unbelievable. And as is typical of men, they'll turn to me and say, so what do you do? I say, I'm going to try and put you in jail. <laughs> because what happens is, is how does, how, and I, how does a, a man like me, married, three incredible children, their spouses, eight grandchildren, work hard, what do I cross in my values that I've ever met a girl in the world that I believe wants to sell her body for 20 bucks, 50 bucks, put any number on that. There isn't one. It's driven out of what Gandhi says is the chief sin of this millennium, utter poverty. And so I say, what do you find in the world that so upsets you you're willing to spend the rest of your life to change it? You've got to cross the line of faith first. You've got to find personal freedom from your past. You've got to discover the gifts and skills that God wants to put in you. Then go make a difference in this world. Jesus was asked what the greatest commandments were by the religious leaders. There were 600 of them they'd written. And he said, you love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And second, you love your neighbor as yourself. In a minute, I'm going to pray for you as we close.
Thank you for listening to me. We're going to receive an offering. It's a symbol of, of the work that goes on here. And if you're our guest today, there's no obligation for you to give. It's the way, it's the way resources are raised for Cornerstone to do what it does here and around the world. And then the worship team's going to come back and play a closing song, Crashing Down, because I want you to know that if right now you're on the top of the world, I mean, everything's perfect. You're in the minority. But if the world has started to turn, it will eventually roll right on top of you. And it is the strength of your values. God speaks through His Word. And as my father said, it's the guide path to your life. Son, you remember who you are. You're a Nauri. You do what's right. Pray with me. Father, thank you for allowing me to talk with this generation. And uh, I am reminded of the sacrifice of the generations of the past. And Lord, let us look at our world as our stewardship, our watch, our responsibility, and the people that are in it. And Jesus, if I know anything about you, you would not have, have hung out with the richest of the world unless it was to challenge them. But you would have walked amongst the hurting, whether it was on the inside or the outside, the lepers. Forgiven them and cleansed them in Jesus' name. I pray that we would see this world through your eyes. And make a difference. And I'll thank you for it. You are my Lord. I am not ashamed of you. Help me to do what's right in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening.